Hi there, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Crystalline Sci-Fi. I'm your host, TJ, a.k.a. Crystalline Forest. You can find the Instagram um, for the Crystalline Mythos at uh, the underscore Crystalline underscore Mythos, or you can check the show notes for a link. Um, if you'd like to support this podcast or if you'd like to support the Crystalline Mythos in general, uh, find us on Patreon. So that's www.patreon.com slash crystalline mythos um at our patreon page you will find um a novel uh, from the crystalline mythos you'll find short stories um you'll find uh some comic book pages um from a sort of graphic novel project that's uh, in the works um so we always post things related to uh that project there um and you'll also find information um related to this podcast maybe we'll do some exclusive content so uh you know obviously our patreon uh, our patrons are a a huge help um and that's uh you know the best way that we're going to be able to put out um more art more podcasts more um writing just just more stuff um so uh, please consider signing up um okay that out of the way uh Today I'm going to talk to Travis um, about uh, basically the Alien franchise and Ridley Scott. Um, But before uh, that discussion, um, I want to talk a little bit about the writer Philip K. Dick. I was thinking about just doing a deep dive episode about him, uh, which I, you know, I still uh, very well might. Um, But... I thought today I would just give you guys some of the basics and just talk about him a little bit before uh, we go to the interview. Um, Yeah, so Philip K. Dick is really super interesting. Um, He was born in uh, 1928, and he died in 1982. Um, But the period that he was active um, as a writer is mostly mostly from the 50s on, so uh, 1952 to 1982. So during this 30-year period... Uh, he produced uh, 44 published novels and also uh, like 120 short stories. It says here on Wikipedia 121 short stories. Uh, anyways, um, he talked about all kinds of stuff. He talked about uh, simulation and simulacra. He talked about crazy corporations. He talked about um, uh, alternate realities. He talked about drugs. He talked about, uh, you know, uh, tyrannical governments. Um, he had this idea about orthogonal time and, uh, you know, a lot of things about the perception of reality. Uh, how does reality work? Um, what does it mean to be human? A lot of his characters were broken. Um, there was a lot of uh, mental health issues, um, not only with him as a person, but a lot of his characters dealt with uh, mental health issues. Uh, what's real, you know, that, that's the sort of question. Um, one of the main questions at the center of his uh, work. But um, also, uh, you know, what, what makes a person um, human, you know, and what makes a person like a fascist um, or, a, or, or a robot? And so empathy is a very important issue uh, for Philip K. Dick. Um, in the novel uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, there's a test called the Voigt-Meinhof test, I believe. And this test determines if you're a human or an android, uh, depending on um, if you're capable of empathy, really. 
And um, so empathy was just like what this guy was about. Um, and that's a point that I think is important to drive home because uh, it could be lost um, by some uh, readers or, or viewers of, um, you know, the movies that uh, his, his work is based off of. Um, because I perceive this guy, even though he's kind of crazy, to be um, a pretty empathetic, nice person. And uh, that's something that's pretty cool. You know, like when he died, a lot of people were um, pretty sad. Uh, I remember hearing from some of the interviews in a, a documentary about him. Yeah, and I think his readers um, feel the same. Now, personally, I've read about a dozen of his novels. And um, so that's by no means um, all his stuff. Hollywood has been impacted hugely by this guy. Um, you know, The Minority Report, that was one of his short stories. And, you know, we've got that Tom Cruise movie. He did uh, Scanner Darkly, and then Richard Linklater adapted that into a pretty cool rotoscoped animation project with Keanu Reeves and Robert Downey Jr. Um, yeah, that's a cool movie. Uh, there's The Adjustment Bureau. We've got that Amazon show now. Uh, uh, Electric Dreams. We've got that other Amazon show, uh, you know, um, come on, The Man in the High Castle. And that's based on one of his just awesome uh, novels from the early 60s. Um, yeah, so there's just a lot that this guy offered. You know, a lot of times I think about uh, Tolkien, and I think about how Tolkien created um, Middle Earth and or Arda, and um, he spent his life making this, this world and making it feel real. Um, Philip K. Dick never really did um, even as much as a sequel. He, every single book he, he wrote was like a new universe. Um, and those universes might be like, you would think, okay, are they like augmented versions of our reality? And yeah, that's what they are. But what you start to see is a sort of meta-reality form um, from because in book to book or short story to short story um each universe um has very strange things going on um in fact by the end of a story uh the reality in which the characters exist might um bend in on itself or change in some significant way and this might drive the characters uh crazy it might give them a revelation uh, it might just make them feel like they had a religious experience like the way uh, Philip K. Dick felt after 1974 when he, in fact, had his own religious experience. He So I guess he went to the dentist, and they uh, jacked him up on some sodium pentothal, it's called, and uh, he went home, and he's resting, and uh, a lady comes to the door, and he answers the door, and uh, she's got one of those Jesus fish necklaces, and it's uh, gold and it glimmers and the light that reflects from it turns into this pink light and it zaps him and it's like an to him he I think he claimed it was like an alien consciousness or perhaps it was uh, something from heaven or a, an astral realm of some kind I don't actually think he knew I think he tried to figure out what it was and that resulted in a eight to nine thousand page document called the Exegesis of Philip K. Dick, uh, which was found in I believe his garage when he died, and it, it was totally unedited. Um, although there is an edited um, 
version of about a thousand pages now available. Um, and I listened to some of that on audiobook, and it's uh, pretty out there. I mean, he's uh, he was kind of like a, a bit of a I don't want to say well he was he was manic, but the word I'm looking for oh it's a hypergraphia. He had this condition where he just sort of automatically wrote for the last eight years of his life, and that resulted in this exegesis. Uh, but I feel like we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. I mean, okay, so the 1960s and the 1970s, in this period, he wrote a couple of books every single year. I mean, he was cranking them out. And yeah, uh, this was because he was on drugs, probably. But, you know, he didn't get writer's block. Which, I mean, I get writer's block all the time. This guy, no, he just wrote and wrote and wrote. Now, he didn't necessarily always revise things as much as he should have, but he always had ideas and he always was producing. We get Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. That's 1968. That's adapted later into Blade Runner. He actually got to see... Uh, some of the dailies and uh, I believe he met with Ridley Scott which is cool um, yeah just the idea that Philip K. Dick and Ridley Scott you know met each other to me is I don't know that's one of the that's like uh, Elvis meeting Nixon for me I mean that's like one of these big moments um, yeah so and do Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep is really a good uh, book to start with or uh, the 1969 novel Ubik is another really good place to start. And these two novels are pretty different from each other, but the reason why I think they are good places to start is because they're both pretty well edited, um, very well written. Um, the characters are compelling in both of these um, novels, and they both contain a lot of Philip K. Dick's um, major themes. Okay, so a bit about the novel, uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Uh, it's similar to Blade Runner in many ways, but in other ways it's completely different. Uh, the main character, the protagonist, is Rick Deckard. He's an SFPD officer in the book and not an L uh, LAPD officer like in uh, the movie. Um, but yeah, uh, he uh, he's his job is to retire uh, these uh, Nexus uh, 6 androids. And these androids had escaped from Mars and come to Earth. Uh, they look really similar to humans, right? You can't really tell any difference, uh, you know, and they sort of hide amongst uh, humans in society. Um, and this is how this guy uh, makes his living. Um, yeah, so he lives with his wife. His wife isn't in the movie. Um, and I remember early in the book they use this device called a mood organ and his wife actually sets it to a setting so that she could be depressed like once a month and they have their like sort of arguments about it this is a common thing by the way in philip k dick's uh, books that the characters get in these sort of arguments with their wives because um, he usually has like a male protagonist who's like kind of brooding and kind of an everyman but uh you know they're usually not super happy. Um, so Deckard is sort of a good example of that. Anyways, when he sort of starts his adventure, he comes across this uh, woman named Rachel, who is in the movies, um, 
or yeah, she's in actually there's a CGI version of her in Blade Runner 2049. Uh, and then he ends up, yeah, determining that she's in Android or uh, she admits that she's she's in Android. Um, and he goes about the um, the act of uh, retiring the Nexus uh, six um, androids. And, uh, I, you know, that's that they're pretty much uh, bad guys in the in the in the book, whereas in the movie they're they're um, Roy Batty gives this like beautiful speech at the end, the tears in the rain speech. Uh, he doesn't you know, you don't really get that in the book. Um, but you do get a lot of sort of, um, you know, ethical uh, sort of pondering and introspection from Deckard about, uh, you know, androids, about empathy, about, uh, you know, philosophy kind of questions. And um, at the end, after uh, Deckard, he uh, manages to... Um, he manages to, you know, make some money. He buys a goat. Um, yeah, so animals are a huge part. Uh, you see it a little bit in 2049, but not as much in the uh, in the original film. Uh, but uh, he buys a goat for his wife. And, and, and the reason why is because if you have an animal, you can uh, communicate to other humans that you have empathy. This is like a big thing. Uh, that people care about in this futuristic society because it's also, you know, this is such a dystopian world. Uh, it's cyberpunk, really, right? Uh, Philip K. Dick is in many ways like the earliest cyberpunk writer, um, although that term really was coined by, like, uh, I believe it was coined, you know, from William Gibson, uh, Neuromancer, a little bit later. But, um, yeah, but just picture a really dystopian world i mean it's animals really expensive really hard to find a real animal so you get an electric animal an electric sheep right uh, but he gets a goat and um and i believe uh rachel because he had a an affair with this android right she she's angry and um she uh i believe she throws the goat off of the roof at the end uh yeah, so it's got elements that you don't really see in the movie. And it, it's also got, like, this fake religion called uh, Mercerism. And Mercerism's pretty weird. It's like a virtual reality form of Christianity. So you already can start to see some of Philip K. Dick's uh, sort of um, unusual religious beliefs come into his work. Um, it's like they... I don't really understand Mercerism super closely, but uh, it's a it's some sort of religion where people share some sort of collective experience in a shared reality, and this reality might not be real, um, but there's ideas about collective um, like collective beliefs. There's this uh, empathy box, which is this like. I don't know. It's like this box that is used to connect to some kind of profit. It's it's kind of strange. I'm not going to pretend I totally understand uh, Mercerism, but the the important thing here is that a Philip K. Dick novel is usually not just about one thing. It starts off about a main thing. Um, okay, like Rick Deckard is hunting replicants, or I'm sorry, he's hunting androids. 
Um, but then you find out, okay, but there's mercerism. So there's a weird religion that people are participating in. And there might be like a conspiracy going on, uh, you know, whether it's about mercerism or there could be a conspiracy going on with the government or something like that. I'm just saying in general with his novels. Um, and then uh, in this novel, we've also got this empathy th uh, thing with, um, you know, with the electric animals and uh, this being a hugely uh, like important economic issue and this being an important issue for your standing in society. Uh, yeah, so some of his novels have so much of this uh, A plot, B plot, C plot, D plot sort of thing going on that people get kind of confused. But it's also what makes the novel so cool, in my opinion. And Hollywood has a hard time keeping up with this. They want things to be simple and to make sense. They don't want reality to bend in on itself halfway through the movie. But that's what a Philip K. Dick novel is really like. Okay, so that's about as much as we're going to talk about Philip K. Dick today. Um, next time I'll talk about uh, Ubik and the plot of that book. Uh, but uh, Travis is here, and we've got an interview for you. We're going to be talking about Xenomorphs and the Alien franchise. So uh, check it out, everybody. All right, let's get to that interview. <laughs> Okay, so I'm here with Travis. Uh, hey, what's up, man? What's up, TJ? Okay, let's let's give that uh, preliminary shout out of your uh, handle and stuff. Yeah, so on Instagram, I'm abformal underscore media. I've got a little bit of everything uh, from my adventures working in the film industry. Anything from 3D modeling and 3D lyric videos down to just compositing phone screens onto blank right. phones. <laughs> and no, and that and then uh, that was why I, I one of the things I had thought about the Alien franchise in regard to you was because of this uh, this Alien Xenomorph artwork that you had uh, put on your computer. Yeah, so the background of my computer is the Xenomorph from the Alien Resurrection box set. And I also hand-carved with a Dremel uh, the same xenomorph into the plexiglass on my computer tower. Yes, this is this is why we're talking to Travis about alien folks. The geekdom runs deep. Uh, so there's just a lot to talk about here. Um, there's a bunch of movies, obviously. Some of them are really good, and some of them are less good. <laughs> Uh, I'm not. What's your? For, I guess first question for you is, uh, what's your take on the uh, Alien vs Predator films? Um, so the Alien vs Predator, uh, Ridley Scott has come out 
pretty he, clearly and said that they're not included in the canon. So I'm glad uh, that he said that because personally I find them to be stupid. Well, also like the events in Prometheus kind of overwrite the whole backstory in Alien versus Predator where the Predators are breeding the aliens for like sacrificial battles. Yeah, that okay. whole business. <laughs> yeah, I the guess the engineers would over. I'm kind of glad that they went the other route because the engineers are so much cooler. Um, uh, I know some people would disagree with me, but uh, and it's not that the Predator films aren't cool. It's just like I think the Predator films are cool. The Alien yeah. versus Predator are not so much. But uh, I'm kind of on the less. Uh, popular side of the fence where I like all of the canon alien movies. I think they're all great. There are definitely ones that are better than others, but I right. think they all have their place in the overall uh, story, and I think it's an interesting one. Yeah, I guess that what that brings to mind is Alien 3 and Alien Resurrection, which some, some people in the fandom aren't such huge fans of, but I like those films. I think it's interesting. Like, I think that uh, I think that uh, Ripley kind of gets the shaft in a lot of those, and although it's like self-sacrifice for the sake of humanity, I feel like she's uh, missing the story that she deserves in those. Make sure to uh, stay close to the microphone. Nice and you know, close. I'm, no, not that close, but just like anyway. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, no, I I, I totally agree. Uh, so we have the original film, uh, that's Ridley Scott, that's 1979, it's like a suspense thriller, we get the famous chestburster scene in that movie, uh, and we get Ellen Ripley sort of showing off her, uh, you know, that strong action heroine, uh, thing, and for the first time, um, she's smart, uh, she's, she's, um, she's more than that though, she's dynamic and, um, and uh human and uh she gets through the first film and in the second film it really expands into a, a much bigger uh this is the james cameron run right so yeah much more of an action movie and we get uh like the alien queen and the, the famous power loader scene where they um stay away from her you bitch yeah yeah no. or is it is it get away from her you bitch I, I couldn't tell you, but I got to tell you, that's one of my favorite movie scenes of all time. Yeah, it's a great scene. So, so Ellen Ripley is definitely at the heart of what makes the franchise cool, um, but she does go through a lot. And some of the other characters, I feel like, get tossed around. Like, okay, so at the end of, um, at the end of uh, Aliens, uh, I believe Ripley survives and then Newt survives. Yes. And then you've got Bishop, the android. Yes. And then, but I believe you've also got—is his name Hicks? Hicks. Uh, Hicks gets burnt by the acid. He's done. Well, they were they were talking about bringing Hicks into the. Um, they were when they three. They were talking about uh, what's his name, uh, Neil Blomkamp, the guy who did. Uh, District Nine. District Nine. He was talking about basically making a replacement Alien Three movie, Once Upon a Time, that Hicks was going to somehow have survived and become a part of to kind of give a redemption story for Ripley. But uh, I'm pretty sure the plug got heavily pulled on that. 
Mm, I think it might have been neat. I always thought that one of the things about the uh, David Fincher film, Alien 3, that was kind of like made it strange and why some fans didn't stick around for that one. I forgot it was Fincher that did that one. Yeah, pretty interesting. Pretty early in his career, and the studio gave him a pretty hard time. Um, but anyways, uh, one of the things that, um, like right from the get-go, that makes that movie kind of strange is that all these characters who you you know kind of connect with in uh, Aliens are, are are suddenly dead, and then um, this plan is so weird. All these weird prisoner people that are all like vicious, and they're. Uh they're heavily religious too and they're not particularly vicious but they have a a vow of celibacy and that's what makes it her dynamic interesting because she's challenging these like uh these religious views of this prison planet and she kind of has to fight back at first until they come to their senses yeah well and but then you have so newt's dead so that sucks you're like oh and then um bishop is just like a head and uh, eh. they don't they put him back on his body though right and then he's working for the Whalen Corporation still trying to get the she was impregnated with the the new alien queen in that one and she um, and that's why she throws herself into the pit of fire but the Whalen Corporation's trying to get a hold of basically her and the impregnated version of the queen inside of her for for the testing. Right, that's so where you, resurrection takes off from is that they've reincarnated her right. from like eight different attempts to clone her from the DNA from the vat of acid or whatever she throws herself into. Yeah, so Alien Resurrection's a whole other weird story. It's like 200 years after that. Uh, the director of this film is Jean-Pierre Jeunet. A French director. It's written by Joss Whedon, which is pretty interesting. It's got Winona Ryder in this one. Uh, this was sort of in the era where their CGI started to be, and, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why a lot of people don't like this movie. I do like this movie, but I think that the CGI was a mistake. Um, it's, a, it's a little lacking. I think three had some CGI parts in it too that weren't all that great. Yeah, it's definitely got some special effects that didn't quite... I don't know if they went over budget. I think they went way over budget in that movie. Um, that being said, in 3, you get one of the coolest birth scenes in the entire franchise when the hybrid from uh, this technically uh, like her grandson is birthed from the queen that she was carrying. Mm-hmm. And you get the... Uh, you get that the white the white oh xenomorph yeah that's that pretty weird through the hole and she has that weird attachment to it because it's technically like family to her yeah i like this idea that there's different types of uh xenomorphs i, I think in prometheus they might have had one called a neomorph or i don't the, know the in prometheus is the first incarnation of one and it is the deacon they call it and oh, that is okay. that is uh it's technically not a xenomorph yet as far as it's con- uh, considered in canon and it's just cool that there's like a taxonomy there you know yeah well, it's interesting because, like, the whole thing is that the xenomorph comes from, like, this bioweapon that the engineers created that's basically meant to just uh, morph DNA. So it attaches itself in through, like, the impregnation of the face huggers into the DNA, and it, like, 
that's where where you get like in three you get the you get the weird dog one from the the prison the prison dog that gets infected or is that oh, resurrection yeah. uh, it might be resurrection. i couldn't tell you offhand uh i mean i could do a rewatch and stuff i mean i i've seen all these films though um but let's actually skip over to uh, prometheus because i feel like you're you're talking about the deacon um and then and in this one we get the character david and, and, and i think david eight yeah this idea that i don't know if he created the xenomorphs or if he uh he changed them he it... he basically he engineered by the uh end of covenant it is revealed that he has uh basically been working behind the scenes while he's been stuck on the planet right uh the original home planet that he bombed with all of the engineers and that he's been working on basically perfecting this organism that came from this bioweapon right what did you think about uh the way in alien covenant that elizabeth shaw that david kills elizabeth shaw in covenant or you know is... what i'm talking about uh, uh numi uh rapace the character that you know the yes. actress from uh yeah I know the who, girl with the dragon tattoo I know who she is she's i thought she was awesome i thought she could yeah, been... i think she's great and everything i've ever seen her in has been great um yeah so i mean i feel like she uh she could have been a new a new ellen ripley and uh she didn't get to be and of course we get daniels and we get to, what's um that actor from uh, those james franco movies uh come on the guy that yeah the big guy with uh, the uh, danny mcbride danny mcbride yes. that's very funny they brought him in i thought he was great in that movie i thought it was a good role for him actually yeah and if they do ever make a third one which i'm not sure now i feel like disney has acquired fox so the question of uh in i think they were going to call it alien awakening yes it, um and that's supposed to become that's supposed to come between prometheus and covenant what yeah <laughs> okay that's pretty weird it's kind of like the it's kind of like this more geared towards the story of what happens with uh with what's her name with elizabeth with shaw elizabeth shaw and oh i would actually she... like that though yeah, I think that's that's supposedly what it's supposed to be. There hasn't See, been I was under the impression I was under the impression that they were gonna make a movie about all these people waking up in a space station, uh, where uh, you know where uh, David has placed these uh, embryos of the xenomorphs in uh, some of the um, I I guess these little uh, I don't know what to call them these little like beakers where they were gonna have human embryos. And uh, they hatch and they become so there's aliens on the ship and they're gonna, you know, cause total havoc. But uh, but if they go the direction that you're talking about, I think that would potentially even be cooler. So that would be cool. I like that. I mean, for it to fall in between those two parts of the timeline, there's not a large gap. I think the different the time between prometheus and covenant is either 11 years or like 28 years i can't remember which one there's there's a a bunch of gaps in time between all of the movies just cool it's like the whole cryo sleep thing coming to fruition right yeah so there's definitely so much uh to talk about i mean there's a there's the future of the franchise there's the long history of the franchise there's ridley scott 
you know, just the fact that he was even able to come back and make Prometheus an alien covenant, if you think about it, is pretty wild. Yeah, I think it's cool. Uh, the one thing that is concerning, though, is that um, Ridley Scott has come out pretty clearly and said that even his choice to direct Covenant was a business decision and that he thinks, quote, the beast is dead. Right. And that uh, that the franchise has kind of run its course in his eyes, but um, he obviously still cares about it somewhat, but he feels like he wants to move on uh, to different things. I think he's interested in different themes, and that's why David... Um, for him and maybe the engineers were of more interest he which i think is cool i mean i think that this idea of a wider alien universe uh that isn't all about you know the shock value of xenomorphs uh killing people uh you know that it would go beyond that that there would be a mythology uh, sort of like a anti-star wars universe you know i think that that's dope yeah, and it's also kind of got a little bit of, uh, I mean, sort of like a, a biblical type story arc too, with the engineers being the creators of the human race, and right. that they were basically coming back to destroy us when their their biochemical uh, weapon got released on them. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of all those ancient aliens documentaries and um, the Anunnaki theories and all that Babylonian whatever, the, you know, the ancient Babylonian yeah, tablets. I've always, been a, I've always been a fan of those theories. Oh, really? Well, I suppose that's another conversation, but I, I do really like the way that they uh, pull in that sort of stuff uh, in a uh, intelligent way. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, personally... I, I saw, uh, I actually went with John and we saw uh, Prometheus. And I remember when we got out of the theater, he was like, what did you think of that movie? And I said, oh man, it was awesome. And he goes, I thought it sucked. And so the fandom <laughs> reaction was pretty split. I mean, but I, w I really liked it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I thought, I thought Prometheus was great. I mean, you know, it has its plot holes and its silliness but like as an overarching story to kind of tie the uh the origin together and do away with the god-awful predator versus alien right storyline that's uh that's a win in my book plus yeah, the yeah. visuals are freaking awesome like they were right really crushing it with the visuals in that one i thought it looked fantastic and i thought right. some of the monsters some of the scene the scene where the machines cutting the 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 squid thing the squid out of, uh, out of her, yeah. Shaw's, um, the stomach the some they called it like a, a trilobite something or other was the actual name of it and it was yeah that's some real body horror uh uh it's a very scary scene i, I remember thinking this is very much like the aliens movies because when you go into the movie or prometheus in the theater you weren't necessarily 100% sure this was the aliens universe. And even that scene, that creature is, it looks like a squid. It doesn't look like a xenomorph. So, but it's a very, uh, it, yeah, it's the same sort of horror. And, um, 
Yeah, I I just remember coming out of that movie going, whoa! Like I really hope they make a sequel to this. Yeah, I was uh, I was a big fan uh, for a lot of reasons, but yeah, it's definitely like some of those horror elements are very akin to the original movie, like the chest burster and the and the the machine cutting the uh, the squid out of her, the the trilobite out of her, are very akin to each other. Right, right. Um, so you saw the original Blade Runner, but you didn't ever see Blade Runner 2049? I haven't yet, and it's mostly just uh, missing opportunities on like streaming services and about a thousand other movies that I want to watch. So, Right, right. Um, just, I guess because we're talking about Ridley Scott, I thought I would bring up uh, Blade Runner, right? I know. I'm. A, I mean, maybe it's a little bit of nerves. Like I heard it's great, but like at the same time, the original Blade Runner is near and dear to my heart, and it's. Uh, it's been hard watching Harrison Ford recently. Like I thought he phoned it in so hard in the Star Wars movies, and like he was even on like late night television saying that he only took it because it was a paycheck. Right. And I'm worried that he has a big enough part in this to kind of put a bad taste in my mouth with the franchise maybe that's why i've been putting it off um his performance in blade runner 2049 isn't bad he's not the main character i think it's pretty good uh he uh um i mean he's obviously much older um ryan gosling does a a super cool job in 2049 and i like ryan gosling too so right that's not ridley scott right Uh, that's denis villeneuve who's doing the new dune film as well Denis yeah. Villeneuve's got an incredible track record. He's uh, he's setting himself up to become a new like master of cinema. Um, yeah, but just to get back to uh, Ridley Scott, um, you know the original the production of the original Blade Runner film is really a pretty amazing story. Um, there's a documentary about it, um, and uh, he you know you could really tell that this filmmaker was somebody who was very passionate uh even though he fought with the studio quite a bit he was just very passionate about um creating uh, a world about um you know just using his imagination and i think uh i don't know if nowadays as an older filmmaker i think he actually still has retained much of that i think he's gotten a bit stranger uh he really i think science fiction even though a lot of his films aren't science fiction uh, science fiction is where his like passion still lies, though. Uh, I don't know what what you think are about all that. Are we talking about you... Villeneuve, or are we talking? No, about... I'm talking about Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott. Yeah, I mean, I think he's. Uh, I mean, he's passionate, uh, business oriented, but I mean, I don't particularly think he's phoning it in at any point. I think he's just, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I he's... would say so too. But maybe the movie wasn't as uh, Alien Covenant, for instance, uh, or uh, Prometheus. They weren't quite as commercial as the studio would want them to be. Uh, that Actually, what he said with Covenant in particular is that's why he picked to direct that over uh, 2049, was that it uh, tested well, like the, the franchise was testing well, and he thought it was a good business opportunity to direct that over 2049, so he handed the reins over. I think that was, I'm kind of glad it worked that way, because um, I don't know if Ridley Scott would have made a Blade Runner movie that, I mean, to, 
to make a movie that could stack up to the original is a uh, a tough thing to do but Denis Villeneuve uh, really knocked it out of the park um, it's just it's a very you really got to see this movie I, I, I would love to go into it um, especially just for this podcast there's a lot of really interesting things about like replicants a lot of um, Philip K. Dickian um, themes come up in this movie that don't even come up in the original um, Blade Runner uh, yeah and for instance there's this uh, relationship in, in it where um, K that's Ryan Gosling's character he's got this uh, love interest who's a hologram named Joy and the question of like uh, their experience, um, like perceptually, like are they conscious beings? Is like a, you know a robot's love? I mean, an android's love for a hologram, or like the uh, sort of sense of loss uh, if you you know were to lose somebody who's not a real human. It all comes off as very. Um, human even though neither of these characters are human uh it's not like rick deckard whereas in blade runner you get this question is like is he a replicant is he not a replicant um by the way in the book he's a human so it's just interesting yeah it's the i was talking about that um at the beginning of the podcast just about how the book uh of do androids dream of electric sheep has a lot of differences from um from the film Blade Runner but there's some things about the movie which are better uh, I was talking about Roy Batty uh, he he's in the book but in the movie he gets that tears in the rain uh, speech at the end you know we're all like tears I I it's like I've seen things you people wouldn't believe sea <laughs> beams on the shoulders of Orion I, I can't I don't remember the exact quotes but it's like he's supposed to be like a couple hundred years old isn't he no, I don't think. Well, may, maybe he's, maybe he's a replicant that lives a long time. But generally speaking, the replicants they die after a very short period of time. Yeah, but isn't that the whole thing? Is that there's people the rep that he's hunting specifically the replicants that have like disabled that like part of them. Isn't that have something to do with like his something mission? Like that. Yeah. Um, I I feel like I saw some sort of uh, you know, like uh deep dive video once upon a time about um blade runner that like where it shows it shows his age or something in in one of like the the computer screens or something and it's like a, a lot more than that and that was like significant for some reason or another but i can't remember mm. the the details no that's that's cool i mean there's these are the sorts of things we at uh crystalline sci-fi need to get to the bottom of we need to figure this out that's cool. Yeah, it's uh, been know. too long since I've seen that movie. That's going to have to be uh, put at the top of my watch list and reviewed again. I feel like I need to watch that one also like right before I watch the new one. I feel like maybe a little marathon of the two would be in order. Yeah, and, and so there is a speculation or there's Easter eggs that are um, contained within... Uh, is it with it you were saying before we were talking about it within one of the the new aliens movies yeah so um no there's uh or is it in blade runner in blade runner there's a part and now the new blade runner now i haven't seen this but i've seen the screenshots and there's basically like a um 
like a test tube, not like a test tube, but like a display tube, kind of like you see in the uh, Aliens movies with um, an engineer inside of it. And it's the same to the same scale as the engineers with the white skin and stuff. And they just walk past Oh, it. is it in the... Uh it's in the Tyrell Corp building yeah uh, something like that and it's a big hallway and just one side is right these and there's a couple other things in like two or three other tubes but one of them is pretty clearly an engineer this is the kind of thing like imagine if if uh in the future if uh Disney or Fox or Disney owning Fox whatever that you would call that if they decided just to give like Ridley Scott his own sort of MCU or Star Wars type universe where uh, Blade Runner and uh, the Aliens franchise were both a part of this larger Ridley Scott universe. Uh, That would be, I'd be pretty open to that personally. I think that sounds pretty cool. Um, One question that arises though, and you can tell me what you think about this is, um, you know, the androids in the Blade Runner universe, the, yes. they're, the replicants, they're very uh, human-like. In fact, they're indistinguishable from humans. But the androids in the Aliens franchise are kind of crazy. And they always, like, get cut up and then all this, like, goop goes everywhere. I don't think get the I don't get the impression that they're the same type of androids. I don't know what your thoughts are. That's a, an interesting thought because I uh, I hadn't considered that before. Now, yeah, there's definitely some like pretty wild differences between them. Um, I think like from the basically the inception of like the human timeline, I guess in. Uh, in the Aliens movies, it starts in 1990 with the birth of the uh, the rich guy that's that creates. Are you the... talking about the guy that Guy Pierce plays in yeah. the Prometheus? Okay, yeah. and so it starts Wayland or whatever. So it starts there, and then I think the events of uh, Resurrection are somewhere in like 2058 or something like that. So Resurrection, Resurrection's like way down the line, isn't it? It's it's within it's within the first hundred years of the twenties. So it's tw- I think it's twenty no, fifty eight. Is Ellen the... Ripley had already been dead for a long time when she comes back like two hundred years later? It's not two hundred years. No, it's like it's something like something like forty years. It's it like says not... right here two hundred years after the events of the previous film. Well, maybe I'm thinking of maybe. Aliens three then. Maybe uh, I maybe I uh, misremembered. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if your just timeline idea got a little screwed up. Sorry, folks, this this sort of thing happens. I mean, it's you know that's the thing about these universes; they're pretty complicated. Um, Let's see if we can find the answer to this. Is it... So, what's the specific question? Are you, you're the asking questions, me? The question is: is that it, at what? point or like what period of time do the aliens movies take place and right. then there's an obvious year at least for 2049 and they're within the same time scale and there's implications that they're related so are the replicants and the the androids the same thing or are they 
Okay, so we looked it up, so we kind of know what we're talking about a little bit more, but it's actually very complicated. Um, but yeah, it's about like 2,120 when Ellen Ripley joins the crew of the Nostromo en route to Thetis as, a warrant, as the warrant officer. And uh, it's in 2122 that we start to see all of this stuff, like the, the Xenomorph facehugger. Uh, uh, yeah, events of the stuff. first movie. Right. And then, but way back, if you jump back to uh, the 20th century, we get a bunch of stuff with the Wayland Corporation and uh, Sir Peter Wayland, and that's Guy Pierce's character. Um, and then Prometheus. And then next year is when uh, is when Elizabeth Shaw's character is supposed to discover the uh, the cave painting. That was which year? That was 19, 2021, right? Uh, let's check. Let's check. Yeah, because I'm curious when all of the the film Prometheus takes place. Or twenty. Um, no, it says here. Well, that's when he cures cancer. That's yeah, right. in the year two thousand twenty-two, uh, using genetically altered cells as well as elements found beyond Earth's heavens, Wayland, probably the Wayland Corporation, successfully deploys an almost effective cure for almost all cancers. That's pretty interesting. So they're everybody's getting killed by xenomorphs in this universe, but hey, cancer's been beaten. That's pretty interesting. Uh, I, I think Elizabeth Shaw actually comes out around later. That's more of like uh, mid to late 20th century, if I had to guess. But I'm not seeing it. Was it the... Is it, I had the one in my head. Was it 50? Oh, so 2089, an expedition team led by archaeologist Elizabeth Shaw and Charlie Holloway discover ah, yes, a star okay. map located on the Isle of Skye among several unconnected ancient cultures. So that is, I see. So it's pretty cool, man. It's like very, um, it's you know, it reminds me. It's a much more real world timeline than you would see, like in Star Wars, where it's totally fantasy. This is much more like Star Trek, where it's like, you know, it starts off with our normal Earth, um, but there's different companies at play, and and uh, we start to see uh, the Wayland Corporation, and then eventually the the Wayland Utani Corporation, and then you know, then the events of Prometheus and, and I do, David come around. I do appreciate the gaps in the timeline, especially with a monster such as the Xenomorph, where it changes based off of, like, the different organisms that it's encountering and, right. and intertwining with, and so it gives it time to evolve, and that's why you get so many variations of this these aliens, anything from, like, the Neomorph to the Xenomorph and the Deacon and all of that. Right. Well, you know what? That makes me think uh, what we haven't mentioned, but um, we should definitely mention, uh, is H.R. Uh, Giger and how important his designs are and how just creepy they are and awesome they are. Um, and then, because there is this sort of element of change and evolution, um, but it's also like monstrosity, right? <laughs> I think H.R. Giger is one of the most talented guys that there is in this field. Yeah, there and I I saw a documentary about him. I believe he's Swiss. He might be Swedish or something. I don't know, but that might change the he, pronunciation um, for all I know. But um, sure, but the he um, the they show him on his property and him working with his um, what do you call that? Like air airbrush, 
he's doing airbrush work and it's just like he knows exactly yeah, he what he's doing he's a swiss artist he, it is spelled different than geiger counter according to Google, yeah I, I think it's giger but i think it's so commonly pronounced as geiger but that whatever i don't care let's let's take oh they've got a there's a apparently there's a youtube video of him saying his own name here <laughs> that might that might be a tip off as to which is the right one. <laughs> let's yeah. see what let's see what he says. Okay. My name is Giger. Okay, he it says is, it's Giger. He, it's Giger. <laughs> right. uh, well, there it is. So a bit about H.R. Uh, Giger. He uh, he he used a, a small these small ink drawings at first, and then he progressed to oil paintings, and he worked uh, predominantly in airbrush. And he created these monochromatic uh, uh, canvases that depicted like really nightmarish, uh, surreal images. Um, and yeah, these were used in the original Alien film. Uh, you know, uh, uh, what's that guy? Um, Joe Dorowski? Uh He was he was developing Dune before the David Lynch version came around, and uh, he got uh, Giger to do a bunch of designs for him. And so Giger's really influenced Hollywood in general, and they used his designs, uh, this biomechanical um, sort of aesthetic, to create these uh, Giger bars, which are like these bars that were located. I think there was four of them. There was one in Tokyo. There's one in uh, Manhattan. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, but I think two of them got shut oh, down. This uh, custom geiger ibanez here on the wikipedia page looks pretty sweet too yeah geiger i i remember i used to just sit there at the library and look at these art books of his stuff some of them are looks, so weird looks like he designed the singer of corns um mic stand as well oh i'm sure he gets i had all kinds that's of that's awesome like his designs are used for all kinds of probably music related stuff yeah Anyways, if, if you're listening to this and you're you and you're not familiar with H.R. Giger's work, you really have to look it up and see it for yourself to understand what we're talking about. But uh, it's just it's really incredible. Um, if you watch Prometheus and you see the chamber where they find the engineer, uh, yeah, it's very it's the whole Giger aesthetic again. I personally like the one from the first film with the uh, he was known as. Oh, I forget the oh the the space jockey, right? And um and he's kind of like a like a skeleton that's fused to the chair, and that's all that's left of him. And I think that's like one of the coolest designs in the whole franchise. Right, right. Um, okay, so yeah, I feel like we've uh, we've sort of went through it a bit with the xenomorphs, and we've talked a little bit about uh, Blade Runner and replicants as well. Let's just take a short break, and then we'll come back, and we'll have our Crystalline Mythos discussion. So if anybody's interested, just stick around. Sounds good.
Okay, so we got some water. We're back from break. You hit your vape pen. We're all we're all chilling. We're all good to go. So yeah, we decided uh, during our break that uh, considering that we've been talking about uh, you know robots, androids, replicants, uh, that we would talk about the crystalline mythos in terms of uh, the robots of the crystalline mythos. Uh, that that would be like a nice subject for us to just have a good discussion about. It seems fitting. Right. So that means that uh, if we took a bird's eye view of Enon, this, this continent that the crystalline mythos takes place on, that we would zoom down to Machina, the city where um, most of the stories take place. Um, also Plastipoli, which is south of Machina, uh, and the reason why we would focus on these two places is because this is where technology, where robotics, this kind of stuff happens. Um, the Artaro Corporation, which is the big corporation that sort of runs a lot of the show, they're kind of a monopoly. Not a, not a full monopoly, but they're just such a huge company that they overshadow everyone else. They produce um, what are called uh, Artaro Polygon robots. Um, and that's just one type of robot in the crystalline mythos. Um, yeah, so right now, uh, Travis is looking at this picture of 1K. Um, 1K is uh, a robot that sort of, their 1K's life cycle spans one year, which is, that one year is like the length of the book, Lucid and Machina. Yeah. Um, so 1K is a Artaro Polygon, uh, 1,000 consumer robot and the only one that is a 1,000. So just a bit like about what an Artaro Polygon consumer robot is, is they're like, they're a consumer robot. Like everybody in Machina, uh, not everybody, but like if you have enough money to buy a robot, because I imagine not everybody can buy a robot, um, but people would buy them and, and maybe they're your personal assistant, maybe... Uh, you could use one at your business. You could have one drive a taxi for you, uh, you know, and they've got this big smiling oscillating face. <laughs> right, so that's like the most, and they come in a lot of different colors. So Travis, why don't you just tell us a bit about the uh, 3D modeling um, you did. Uh, he had done uh, 3D modeling of an Artara robot, so. Yeah, so if you if you check on my Instagram, there's actually a 3D uh version of this same robot and it was just you know the one that kind of stood out to me is fun to model i'm learning a new modeling software and he's kind of a, a more simple shape design so i took it upon myself to just make him in 3d and texture him and uh, learn a little bit about this new program by using this uh this design yeah i think that that's really cool um, and one of the things about the uh, Artaro Polygon robots is that they would be really versatile in that, you know, you could just take the same model and make them in all different colors and potentially populate, um, like, you know, a backdrop with them. So it would be like one of those, because each character, like, say, if you were talking about the human characters um, and we were, like, drawing them or 3D modeling them, we would have to, like, individuate each character with all of these features. And in 3D modeling software, that would be very complicated. But uh, this robot, they you know, they've got this simple shell. And, uh, you know, if you spray painted them in different colors, we could, 
it just seems like a fun easy place to get started yeah i mean i could see a potential for like a 3d animated series maybe like a cell shading type style even for yeah i always wondered why all of these like pixar movies and all of this stuff are so geared i mean i I know that cartoons are geared to kids in american society but like like with anime they make it for adults but like 3d 3d is like you know you can make stuff that's like um pixar animation quality that's for adults yeah I would like, I mean, that's like, if I was dreaming, I would picture like a Netflix or Game of Thrones style show, but yeah, full CGI. The the only one I can think of off the top of my head is that one uh, about the the food. What was it? The hot dog characters and all that. Oh yeah, but that's such a terrible movie. The Seth Rogen movie. Yeah, that's. I'm sorry, uh, anybody who likes whatever that movie is. (laughs) It's funny. I mean, don't get me wrong, but I'd want to make something that's serious. That's drama. But anyways, uh, so the Arturo Patrol robots are like bigger, stronger RoboCop versions, I guess, of the... um... That one's pretty neat. So they, in Machina, uh, they have have police, they're called the MPD, but they also have uh, Arturo uh, Patrol robots, which are brought in anytime there's crime, which there's a lot of crime because it's like a cyberpunk type city. Um, but like also it's just like stupid stuff because everything's so like goofy, hyper capitalist, um, like chain, uh, restaurant chain corporation type structure that like, if somebody like in the first novel, this guy puck, he goes to a soda machine and he fills up, fills up, uh, his water cup with soda and the security system gets tripped and, <laughs> and an Artaro patrol robot, this huge, like. 10 foot tall robot comes to the store and busts in the place and and like judge jury and executioner says like you have been sentenced i must and he takes him outside and kicks his ass i think that was my first introduction to this other than what i'd just seen online i think i came over here and you played me um that like you had recorded it as an audiobook or something hmm or maybe it was in the car. I don't remember, but I, I feel like I actually got to hear the Yeah, that's from Orange story. Sugar Pop. I never recorded the audio, but I think maybe I just read it or something. It was like chapter one, so it's like, yeah, anybody who reads the novel right at the beginning. Maybe maybe I just read it myself and I read it in your voice, and that's why I'm hearing it in my head that way. <laughs> well, there's also the comic. I did a comic book version of that. Oh, maybe that's what I saw. Right, so, okay, so... We've talked about the patrol robots and the polygon robots. There's also the mini bots. Um, so they're, you know, they've got a succession of like, uh, there's the 700 models, the 800 models, the 900 models. What are the mini bots used for? The mini bots are a little bit cheaper. It's like the difference between an iPod and an iPod mini. Like, uh, you know, you might want to buy, as an assistant, you might want to buy an Artaro polygon robot. Or you might just buy an Artaro Minibot because it's cheaper. And maybe it's more like a like a, the future of PDAs versus a, a personal data assistant. Sort of, yeah. I mean, like uh, you people would use um, a Minibot. Like I don't know if they would drive a vehicle, but they might be able to like na- be a navigator. Yeah. Um, the they could do all kinds. They definitely are used to cook food for people. And um, 
you know, the, this, these things are pretty short. There'd be like under three feet tall. So it's the kind of thing that would jump up on your counter and start cooking, <laughs> cooking food for you. Um, yeah. And then there's a, a sort of a newer invention called the Artaro Omni Assist robots. And I think the idea for the lore with the Omni Assist robots, they're kind of a little bit taller than a polygon robot, a little bit more heavy duty, but they're not like a patrol robot where they're super heavy duty. So they're kind of your medium build robots. Yeah. Um, and generally speaking, they're a, consumers didn't favor them as well. Like you could buy them as a consumer, yeah. but they weren't as popular. So they'd be used by like, I don't know, maybe a mechanic shop would use one, or, you know, they'd help uh, so out. a on, more manual labor type robot. Yeah, they could do some heavy lifting. They could, Because I, they're kind of too tall to, like, bring in um, to your home. I mean, you, they could, they're like, they're not, like, super tall. They're, like, probably, like, six and a half feet tall, these robots or something, you know. So people use them, um, but they're just not quite as ubiquitous as the the yeah. Otaro polygon robot um but yeah there's this this particular oa robot that we're looking at is from this short story called hypnotica where um beatrice delphonic who runs a lot of these dream operations like artaro labs where the main cast of characters work dr yeah. web weaver penelope they send over an omni assist robot to help them with stuff so um, Webweaver is preparing these propulsion craft like ships for uh, an expedition and the Omni Assist uh, robot goes with them on the expedition and also just helps them prepare for it. So, gotcha. they, they, you know, that's why you, it's good to have a lot of different types of robots. And then um, I guess the, another major type. Okay, so we we're talking about all these ones that like are used by consumers. But the Diatron robots are are um, very strange. They, I know this is a listening only podcast, so I'll just describe this a Diatron robot. They look like they're usually like golden plated or maybe silver, but they're usually this one in the picture is golden plated, and they've got these weird spidery like eyes, red eyes that uh, hover above the headpiece. Uh, how would you describe that? Very it's uh, kind it's of got some like reminiscence of like those the little, um, the little robots from uh, not the little ones but the the big like orb robots from Star Wars with like all of the spindles and stuff. Oh, that like come the off drones. Them. Yeah, the little floating drones. Yeah. So a Diatron robot, um, they are humanoid though. They've got these bodies that almost look like, I don't know, something that's almost like a almost looks industrial but it's like sort of c3po like it's got a very um like cnc machine type look like smooth surface type hard yeah. surface model anyways these robots are used by uh corporations um but also and by the government um and they're used for like super technical purposes they're used um like there's one that the grand chancellor um, in their sort of UN structure, which, uh, which is at this place called, it's called the World Council. It's located at this place called Nickel Point Mountain. And the a Diatron robot presides over the council because it's a fair arbitrator. So they, I think they would be used as like judges and things like that. Um, so they're like these super logic robots that are very fair. 
they probably have very machine-like voices, you know, and they determine yeah. things. Yeah. They're probably extremely expensive. So there's a lot of different robots, and um, I know it's not like the main, I don't know if it's the sort of thing that makes the story pop, but I think that's the thing is we're talking about like design, we're talking about the about world building, I guess. Then we're talking about AI as well. Right, right. Okay, so I guess this might be the last robot type. It's um, So the Artaro Corporation makes all of these different robots, and so far that's the only company we've talked about, but there is also a company called the Old Leavenworth Company. And they're not as big as Artaro, but they're still pretty big. They've got a lot of old money, um, like oil money, banking money, things like that, and they do build robots. They're generally not so consumer driven but they use them like for instance inside of their own company um like they have a bar called the bicentennial bar located at the top of um leavenworth tower uh and at that bar the bartenders are robots and they wear suits and they're so it's kind of like their workforce replacement robots for like their company holdings yeah and they're kind of they're kind of um fancy and old-fashioned um, you can usually tell a Leavenworth robot apart from usually they're I mean they're golden, they're uh, much more steampunky. Um, although maybe they wouldn't be. It's like the brass etching kind of feel, something like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, but it, there might be some that are modern as well, but they would just be very, I don't know, like uh, four elitist people who are like not not that smooth or, apple or feel, Nate. but. Yeah, they're ornate. They're like I said, old money. Um, you know, makes you think of the robber barons. There's just a different vibe with the Leavenworth Company than with the Artaro Corporation. Yeah, like that kind of like old engraved feel. Yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. They'd have like the the leafing carved in them, like you'd see on like the side of an old shotgun or something. I, I I think that sort of thing is an interesting idea, and that, like that's it's like a design question. Like if you were designing other Leavenworth robots, yeah, or if you were you know doing it in more uh, like a a more real world detail than the than the drawings are, like to move it out of the the comic view and into like a more three uh, D setting, right? So. Well, yeah, you can see my point. So, and and by the way, if you're listening to us still, if you've stuck around, uh, you can kind of tell that Travis and I are like we uh, the way we communicate. Almost, it seems like we're like talking design. Like, um, if you know, and if we were working on this stuff one day, where you know, it was one of these sort of projects where we, uh, you know, I actually had some damn money to <laughs> to work on this stuff. Good old it, money. We would be designing a bunch of stuff and you just and hit up the leaving the leaving work we just corporation gotta, for some money. Yeah. We gotta get some of that old money. That oil money. Uh yeah, so that's the robots of the crystalline mythos. It's just another aspect that uh you know makes it uh, I mean there's so many other things. There's cyborgs and all of this sort of the things you associate with the cyberpunk genre that we could go over but um i'll leave that to next time i feel like we've talked for quite a while um if you've listened to this and you've liked the podcast um thanks a lot 
Uh, you can support the podcast at patreon.com slash crystallinemythos, uh, or you can just check for a link in the show notes. Um, and yeah, you can check out the show's um, Instagram uh, at uh, the underscore crystalline uh, underscore mythos. And you can give a shout out for your uh, your handle on Instagram. Yeah, thanks for having me, TJ. And my uh, my Instagram once again is abformal underscore media. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on, man. Um, yeah, check out Travis's page. You'll see a lot of cool, uh, you know, cool art, cool design, um, just sort of uh, special effects that he had been working on. It's good stuff. Sounds good. All right, peace out, everybody.